Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're going to be starting in the book of Hebrews, and uh, Mark Horton has uh, been doing some investigation and doing his homework on this, so we're really looking forward to this examination in the book of Hebrews. And as we like to do, we'll start with a word of prayer. Craig, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your holy, inspired word. We thank you that you revealed yourself uh, to us uh, through that word. And we just pray now as we study together that our eyes of our spirit will be opened to hear what you have for us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. And good evening, Mark. Well, good evening. We're finally starting a different letter in the Bible to examine it to see how it stacks up to the popular ideas in uh, at least Protestant uh, religious institutions across the United States. Perhaps we can get a little feedback from outside that category as we proceed. But I think we'll find it uh, interesting to compare nearly all of the popular ideas with what we might find as we examine this letter. And in actuality, it's not a letter like most of the letters in the New Testament. It ends like a letter, but it doesn't begin like one. The title and the author are all assumed since about the second century. They called it the Epistle to the Hebrews, but we have no idea if that's how it was known when it was first written. Just like the Gospels and many other uh, letters in the in what we call the New Testament, they were anonymous when they were originally put out. It was a difficult time to be alive, a challenging time, and there were enemies everywhere. And so this may have uh, contributed to why most of these letters were uh, somewhat anonymous. And we have to depend on uh, tradition and, and history to determine some of the basic facts about some of these letters. And with with Hebrews, whether it, you know who was the letter written to and who wrote it are the two big questions that uh, we'll look at, although we can't answer either one definitively. We can deduce a few things from the letter itself as well as from some 
historical documents that have survived that do refer to it. Many early Christians started including this in the second century along with the works of Paul. And that was about the same time that to the Hebrews began to be used to describe uh, this particular letter. We can discern that this was written to people who were very familiar with what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, although there's an interesting twist to that. The people that this letter went to were familiar with the Greek version of what we call the Old Testament. And we call the Greek version of the Old Testament the Septuagint because it was supposedly translated by 70 scholars in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, around 400 B.C. The Septuagint is a great gift to us because it demonstrates how similar the Hebrew manuscripts are today compared to what was used around 400 B.C. to translate into the Greek. And while there are differences, and there's a lot of minor differences, but the basic uh, idea in every book is, and the basic text is amazingly unchanged. And, and the oldest uh, Hebrew manuscripts we have are almost 800 years newer. They date from the 3rd or 4th centuries A.D. So we can see how relatively little the basic text changed. And how that relates to the letter to the Hebrews is that all of the quotes from the Old Testament, and there are many, 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 are from the Septuagint or the Greek Old Testament. And so we can deduce from that that this letter went to people who spoke Greek and wrote Greek as their first language as opposed to Aramaic, which would have been used in Judea there in the first century. And we can recall from our look at the book of Acts that after the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2, that there were two major categories of the Judean believers in Jerusalem at the very beginning. The vast majority from out of town who had come in to observe Pentecost were Greek speakers, which we would call Hellenists. And Stephen was one of their number. Philip was one of their number. In fact, all of the seven appointed early in the book of Acts to serve the Grecian widows were Hellenists who had Greek names as opposed to Aramaic names. And so we can almost see a connection between those Hellenistic Judeans in the early part of Acts with the audience that this letter was sent to. As we look at this letter, we'll see that the uh, rituals of the Law of Moses are described off and on throughout this letter, and yet they're nearly always referred to in connection with the tabernacle that was constructed back at Mount Sinai rather than Solomon's temple or the second temple rebuilt by Herod the Great and standing at the time that this letter was written. And so we can kind of deduce from that that the knowledge of the rituals 
was based on a study of the scriptures more than first-hand experience with the temple in Jerusalem. Many scholars, in putting all this together, have stated unequivocally that it had to be a Judean audience. And, of course, they use the term Jewish audience. But in their discussion of this, they fail to take into account the more recent scholarship of uh, Mark David Nanos that I used a lot as we looked at the book of Acts. He's a current-day scholar who lives in Corpus Christi, Texas, who, who is an expert on the first-century setting of the synagogue communities throughout the Roman Empire. And he's really brought out the fact that for about a 100 years before the day of Pentecost, that all of the Judean synagogues throughout the Roman Empire had been attracting large numbers of foreigners, people who spoke Greek, people, Italians and Greeks, and people from all over the Roman Empire who were not of Judean nationality. And these were called God-fearers. And in most synagogues, as, as we went through the book of Acts, we could tell that the God-fearers many times outnumbered the Judeans in the synagogue communities that Paul visited. We definitely saw this in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13. And it's alluded to in other places as well. So in addition to the Judeans scattered abroad through the Roman Empire, each synagogue community had an outer circle of foreigners who had been gathering with the synagogue every Saturday to hear the Hebrew Scriptures read. And so a number of these could have been two or three generations who had been listening to and absorbing the books of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets that would have been read publicly in the synagogue every Saturday. And so I don't believe the audience of this letter is strictly limited to Judean nationals, but it certainly is addressed to a synagogue community, a community that is very well-versed in what we call the Old Testament. We see occasionally in the letter some of the oral traditions of the Pharisees being uh, added to the scriptures, uh, not often, but a little bit, which would imply that the author had had some exposure to uh, some of this type of training or schooling. There's a few contrary scholars who claim that this could not have been written to Judeans because the falling away that is warned of in this book would have to involve leaving the true God of Israel completely, which a former pagan might revert back to paganism, but a Judean would only revert back to the law of Moses. However, these arguments are easily overturned by the text of the letter itself, which warns the readers against falling away like the Israelites did in the wilderness under Moses. So if the Israelite nation could apostatize utterly and completely in the days of Moses, 
then it obviously could have also occurred in the first century A.D. Uh, when this letter was written. And again, the, the vast preponderance of evidence says that this letter was sent to some synagogue community in the Greek-speaking world. Some scholars have tried to say that this was an even more specialized group of Judeans that this letter was addressed to, such as the great number of priests who were obedient to the faith in Acts chapter 6. Others, uh, since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, have tried to state that this letter was written to believers who had come out of the Essene sect who squirreled away the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I didn't find anything there really worth, uh, worth sharing, but uh, some scholars think that way. What we can say with more certainty is that the people being addressed had never been with Jesus in person when he was in his fleshly body, but learned of him, as the writer also did, from those who had been in the presence of Jesus in the flesh. And we'll see that in the text in several places as we go through the letter. The people being addressed had endured persecution before this letter was sent to them, but and it could have been significant involving beatings, imprisonment, or even confiscation of their property, but apparently none of them had had to die yet or been called upon to die for their belief in Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. Although the writer can see that in their future as he or she writes to them. It's interesting that uh, a number of scholars think that this might have been like a house church that this was addressed to. And again, as Nanos has pointed out in the recent scholarship, all of the synagogue communities at this time in the first century were basically the equivalent of house churches, and the churches were subsets of the synagogue communities. No freestanding buildings have been discovered earlier than the second century that are synagogues, or and I don't think there's any church buildings earlier than the 3rd century that have been discovered. So, again, to that corroborates uh, you know, some of Nana's work. We can kind of envision the people that received this first as a, as a fairly close-knit family-type community as opposed to our present-day churches of people who sit in pews and stare at the back of somebody's head for an hour or two a week and have done their religious duty uh, until the next Sunday. And, well, I somewhat apologize for my cynicism with that remark, but sad but true. Again, we can see the Greek background of this letter. There is no linguistic evidence that it was translated from Aramaic or Hebrew. It has probably the finest Greek writing style of any letter or book in what we call the New Testament. A very advanced writing style in the Greek language. And so, again, there's very little likelihood that this was originally sent 
to anywhere in the neighborhood of Jerusalem or Judea. There is some acquaintance with Alexandrian scholarship. Alexandria, as I mentioned, is where the Septuagint was originally translated. It had one of the largest Judean communities in the world. A whole quarter of the city was Judean in the first century. And one of the great Judean scholars of the century before Philo left his mark. And whoever wrote this was apparently fairly well acquainted with the writings of of Philo and some other Judean works that originated in Alexandria, Egypt. Some scholars have then concluded this might have been sent to a church in Alexandria, but many others don't believe that's the case because Alexandria is where the tradition began that Paul wrote this letter. And so many of the scholars who don't believe Paul wrote this letter then also say that this letter could not have been sent to Alexandria because they, if, if that was the case, they wouldn't have lost track of who actually uh, wrote the letter. I guess that's a little complicated. <laughs> the first place historically that the epistle to the Hebrews appears to have been well known is Rome. There is a letter that has survived from about the year 96 that Clement of Rome wrote, and he talks a lot about this letter to the Hebrews. He's sending a letter from Rome to the church in Corinth in 96 and refers to this letter. And the churches in Rome in particular were the ones who held out the longest against the idea that Paul uh, wrote this. Again, scholars are seeing some ideas in this letter that would be a little bit out of the norm, say for like a all-Pharisee synagogue, and they're trying to find special groups like I mentioned earlier. But as Nanos has pointed out in his more recent scholarship, nearly all of these synagogue communities in the major cities of the empire had Judeans of all persuasions all mixed together in the synagogue community. You had even the foreigners sitting in the back, the women behind the curtain, but you you might have had Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, and uh, Hellenists, political Hellenists, all intermingled amongst the Judean males in the synagogue community. But again, you'd have much more likelihood of a diverse opinion concerning the law of Moses in these Greek cities than you would in Judea proper. Let's talk here about the authorship a a little bit more. As I've stated, uh, scholars familiar with Aramaic, which was, of course, the Hebrew of the first century. It was the language of Babylon that was brought back from Babylonian captivity, Aramaic as opposed to the older Hebrew script and language that was used in the days of David and Solomon. And going back, we don't know how far. But anyway, scholars who are familiar both with Aramaic and with uh, Konoya Greek of the first century assure us that this letter could not really have been translated from Aramaic. It was written in the Greek language. 
the scholars who have studied Paul's writings in the original Greek language are kind of amazingly agreed that Paul had a great deal to do with this letter, but did not write it himself. On the other end, the people who are pretty adamant that Paul did write this letter can show that this letter is more like Paul's writings than any other book in the New Testament, and they would be correct in that statement. But remember when we talk about Peter or Mark or James, these were Judeans who used Aramaic as their first language. And Paul was a scholar of both, but he was originally uh, raised up in present-day Turkey, uh, speaking the Greek language, and then was later sent down to Jerusalem to be schooled in Aramaic and Hebrew. And he's very accomplished in the Greek language. But those that are really well acquainted with the Greek see a difference of style between Paul's writings and this letter, although they see Paul's thoughts throughout the letter. And so we get kind of a pretty select group of potential candidates who could possibly have written this letter. And none of these people, well, with one exception, which is Luke, have written other books in the Bible to compare writing to. But there are a number of people who think that Luke wrote this letter and favorably compare the style of Luke and Acts to Hebrews, even though they're different genres of literature. In the beginning of the third century, Tertullian stated definitively that Barnabas wrote this letter and acted like many, many other people thought this at the time. I think he was in Carthage in North Africa. Of course, Barnabas was a Greek-speaking Judean and a close associate of Paul. And so uh, he is one historically attributed author of this letter. When the Protestant Reformation broke out, there was a lot of new attention as they were re-examining all the books of the Bible to determine which ones were divinely inspired. Hebrews, being fairly anonymous, got a lot of attention in the 1500s. Erasmus was sure that Paul did not write this, but he conceded that it was inspired by the mind of Paul. Calvin thought that Luke or Clement of Rome wrote this, but Martin Luther was apparently the first to make the brilliant guess that Apollos wrote this, and many, many other scholars since have put forth Apollos as the likely author of this. We know that Apollos was from Alexandria in Egypt, and because of some of the allusion to the Alexandrian writings, that has some validity to it. A scholar named Harnack has suggested that Priscilla and Aquila together wrote this. They were obviously close associates of Paul. They actually were the ones who taught the gospel to Apollos more accurately. They were closely associated with Timothy, which the text demands, as he's mentioned specifically in the last chapter. 
they were the host of a home church in Rome, and the author keeps switching back and forth between we and I, which might be appropriate if a couple had written the book together. But whereas we might conclude that Paul was not the author himself, well, there's a, yeah, there's another reason. The writer himself confesses in the second chapter that he was a disciple of the apostles, and this is not the way that Paul uh, spoke of himself. He adamantly defended his apostleship in Second Corinthians and other places. I guess that pretty well wraps it up. We don't know for sure. God knows who wrote this. <laughs> but even if Paul was not the author, he was a very, very uh, powerful influence on the person who actually wrote this down. And we do see the mind of Paul as we go through the epistle to the Hebrews. As far as dating this letter, as we've already stated, we know that it had been out some time before the year 96. We have many references in the letter to the rituals of the Law of Moses. And as they are described, they are described in present ongoing tenses. So there's a pretty powerful case that this had to have been written before the temple was destroyed in the summer of A.D. 70. Since Timothy's imminent release from confinement is mentioned at the end of the letter, this was obviously written while Timothy is still alive. So if we put all this together, as well as the allusions to the persecution, I think the best guess for dating this would be just before the Neronian persecution broke out in the year 65. So 63, 64, somewhere in there, I think, is the best date that this was likely written. Also, in, in the 8th chapter, we find the author referring to the Old Covenant, saying that which is becoming old and aging will soon disappear. And so again, this would be very appropriate for the period immediately before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Very few scholars in all the centuries have questioned the divine inspiration of this letter, even though the author has remained a mystery. I mean, there's a few uh, who have questioned it, but very, very few have questioned this. It is so unique and so powerful in the way that it uses the Old Testament to demonstrate the superiority of Christ, that to give this up as not being part of the Bible would be giving up just something too good to to, <laughs> to give up. And so very few scholars have uh, have even suggested that. As I mentioned at the beginning, this isn't really a letter in the strict sense of many of the letters that we have in the New Testament. The literary genre would mostly be considered a word of exhortation, which is uh, mentioned in Acts 13 as Barnabas and Paul are in Antioch of Pisidia at the synagogue community, and after the scripture readings, they are 
invited to speak if they have any word of exhortation for the people, which means the people of Israel. And this letter would fall into that category of words of encouragement given to a synagogue community. This, of course, is written as opposed to spoken, but the subject material is very much appropriate for that. The author of this letter views the Old Testament as divinely inspired from the beginning to the end. All of these quotes are used as if God is speaking them directly. Deuteronomy is used frequently. The book of Psalms is probably used more than any other source book from the Old Testament by the writer of this piece here. And most importantly, the Old Testament writings are treated by the author as a parable or mystery which awaits an explanation. And the explanation that is given in the pages of Hebrews takes the form of messianic typology, which is something I've become somewhat enamored with myself in recent years. And as we've pointed out, dispensational premillennialism, a.k.a. Christian Zionism, basically jettisoned the entire concept of typology, which was a bedrock teaching of Protestant churches in the 1800s, but has been almost eliminated from them all over the past 100 years, I think primarily due to the influence of dispensationalism. This typology crushes the very basic foundations of dispensationalism. The idea of going back to the physical forms and rituals of the Old Covenant is an abomination to the author of Hebrews. And he's demonstrating that they were inferior demonstrations of the superior spiritual reality which was to appear in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll, of course, we hopefully will get into all that in much more detail. The author of Hebrews viewed all the years before as an age of anticipation which foreshadowed the age of fulfillment in which he finds himself and his audience living at the time this was written down. He finds it necessary to look before the fulfillment and after the fulfillment and he makes comparisons throughout the epistle. He points out early on the Israelites were looking forward to a rest in the promised land while they were wandering in the wilderness, but then explains that they never fully experienced that rest when they crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land under Joshua. In the age of David, hundreds of years later, they're still looking forward to a rest and then boldly states in chapter 4 that at the present time there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that rest is Jesus Christ. To be in Christ's body is to finally find 
the rest that was promised to Abraham. It wasn't about physical real estate, but we'll we'll get into that later. He rattles off a whole list of heroes of faith, men and women from the Old Testament, who could see beyond the physical reality of the age in which they lived to a spiritual reality which would be revealed in God's due time when Messiah came. The writer establishes the finality of Christianity by establishing the supremacy of Christ in his person and in his work and demonstrating its superiority over and over again. This letter in great measure was written as a warning to a synagogue community against falling away from Christ and reverting back to the inferior types and shadows of the old law and the old covenant and the old ritual. We find six paragraphs of warning within this letter, which gets stronger and stronger as the letter progresses in its argumentation. But we certainly can see the major theme of the letter is that Christ is superior. Anything that's part of the old religion, the old law, and all of that, Christ fulfills it and is superior to it in every way. We will see the writer demonstrate that Christ is superior to the prophets, he's superior to angels, he's superior to Moses, he's superior to Joshua, he's a superior priest to Aaron, to Melchizedek, to Levi. The word better is used 13 times in this epistle. Perfect is used 14 times, and eternal is used 19 times, nearly always referring to Jesus Christ and those who are joined to him. And I would say that's pretty much my introduction, giving some of the background about this writing, an overview of some of the scholarly comments about it, and an overview of the subject material that uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to examine. Any thoughts or questions at this time? Yeah, Mark, I have a question. Several times you talked about the divine inspiration or divine authorship. What is your concept of how first century Judeans or Christians would look at the idea of divine inspiration. Would they take the hyper-literalism that we see today in the Christian Zionist movement, or do they have a more broad view of God said, you know, go out and do this, or God said and do out and do this? How would they approach the Old Testament scripture compared to like Christian Zionism today? Well, as we saw particularly when we looked at the Gospel of John, but we also saw it throughout the book of Acts, there was a tension between hyper-literalism, or I usually describe it as a physical interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. This is always being contrasted to a spiritual interpretation. And when Saul of Tarsus sat for three days in Damascus, unable to eat, in a blinded condition, I believe he was giving up that 
hyper-literal interpretation that was his tradition as a Pharisee. So certainly within Pharisaic scholars, even before the time of Christ, we see two schools. We see those who were interpreting everything super literally, but we also find some, such as the author of the Book of Jubilees, written probably in the second century B.C., who understood that there was going to be a spiritual fulfillment. And and so there was a tension already, but certainly the gospel of Jesus Christ brought that to a head, and this was the major conflict that had to be introduced in every Judean community in the Roman world was whether you were going to stay with a super literal interpretation or whether you were going to accept that these promises were going to be fulfilled spiritually. Does that answer your question directly? Oh, yes, that's, that's good, Mark. Thank you. Anything else? Can't help but think, Mark, you're talking about something we were discussing earlier, and that is the movement back to the Messianic church that's going on within uh, many of the dispensational churches, you said that there's a sort of a falling back to this idea of adopting Judaic practices and holidays and and all kinds of other beliefs, basically, that's going on within a lot of dispensational churches. So a lot of dispensational churches are becoming messianic churches, is what I'm I'm saying. Is that is that, was that what you were alluding to, or did you have something else in mind? Well, not specifically, but it's not any surprise because, again, they haven't been allowed to study typology, so I don't understand how they can even leave the epistle to the Hebrews in their Bibles because from the beginning and to the end completely condemns so much of their religion. <laughs> the whole letter is based on a typological interpretation of the Old Testament and demonstrating that the spiritual reality of Christ is superior to the physical realities of the law of Moses, the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the animal sacrifices, etc., etc., etc. The Messianic Church basically believes that you can't really be a Christian unless you also adopt elements of Judaism. That's kind of what they teach, based on the Messianic leaders I've met. Well, I don't know too much about them, but they definitely, that's what they practice. There's no question about that. And again, Paul condemns any such thinking unequivocally. The author of the Epistle to the Hebrews would condemn that kind of thing. So I don't know how you reconcile that. I I, I'm not faced with it, but I'm sure they have what in their mind at least are convincing workarounds and explanations for these apparent contradictions. Look forward to the lesson. Very good. We'll hopefully start in Chapter 1 then next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch 
for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.